Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you whenever you're here tonight. Of course, there's a lot of other things you can be doing other than being here tonight, especially young people on Friday evening. But it shows your interest in being here tonight, that you're interested in spiritual things, and I think important things. And I hope that your uh, time with us tonight will be beneficial. I hope that we can present some things that uh, that will be a building to your faith and, and uh, will be encouraging to you. Of course, we're here tonight to discuss the existence of God, and each of us has the ability to believe or not believe in the the existence of God. Human beings, of course, are free moral agents. We've been given the right to make our own decisions. We decide what we want to wear and what we want to eat and where we want to go. But what matters the most is what we decide to believe. With freedom uh, comes responsibility, and with the freedom of choice of what we believe comes the responsibility to, to think clearly and to choose wisely. There's been a lot of people throughout the years who have chosen not to believe in God. They don't believe in His existence. And there's a lot of different names by which they go by. Some call themselves atheists. Some call themselves free thinkers or agnostics. They are free to think what they want to think. They're free to believe what they want to believe. But the question we want to look at tonight is what they believe. Is it reasonable? Is it logical to believe that? I personally, and I think that you do too, want to believe what is reasonable. I want to believe what is true. If we don't believe what's logical and reasonable, then we're going to accept that which is unreasonable and that which is false. And I don't really think that's what we want to do. So I want us to think about what is the most reasonable, what is the most intelligent decision that we can make about this subject to logically conclude what the truth is about the existence of God. Does he exist or not? Now, the atheist and the evolutionist uh, says that belief in an intelligent designer and creator, they say that's just blind faith, a leap in the dark, to believe that there is a God that you've never seen. But I want to look at the fact that their theory is what's empty. Their theory, their idea of there not being a God, when you look at the facts, when you look at the evidence, that that's what's empty. The very arrogant uh, champion of the atheist, Richard Dawkins, and you can tell that by his shirt, he says faith is the great cop-out. It's the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. That's what Dawkins says. But I want you to examine some things tonight to determine where the cop-out really is. I want you to examine it. I want you to examine it carefully and make a logical conclusion see what you truly believe, and really see who it is who uh, evades the, the evidence. And I want you to decide what's credible. I believe by the things that we'll present tonight that we can prove that the atheist evolutionist is the one who has blind faith. The atheist acts like there's no faith in what he believes. I want to tell you, it takes as much faith to believe that everything we're come into existence from nothing and evolved into what all the that we have as we look at this design is it does to believe that there was a creator who, who designed it all. I believe I'll show you that it is the Christian who believes in God as creator who has faith based upon credible evidence as he looks at intelligent design 
is the one who makes the proper conclusion. When you think about the existence of God as seen in the evidence of, of intelligent design, that's what we're looking at tonight. If we can look at these things and look at what is reasonable, make it a proper evaluation of these things, I think that we'll see that there is a God. That intelligent design points to the fact that there is a divine designer. That we believe in God and his existence. You know, faith is essential to the Christian. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. You have to believe that there's a God. That's the basis of our being pleasing to him. We have to, true belief seeks God. It obeys him. But we must believe that there is a God. It's essential. But faith is not, as the atheist says, it's not blind. True faith is not blind. There may be some who have faith that's blind because they've not examined the evidence about what we see about God and what we can read about God. But true faith is not blind. There are some people who have the idea that, that faith is inferior to knowledge and in some way that faith involves doubt, but it does not. True faith is about knowledge. It's about what you know to be true. True faith is not based on emotions, though there are some in denominations who say that their faith is based on a better felt than told feeling. They base what they believe on feelings. But true faith is not blind. It's not based on emotions. True faith is taking God at his word. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But here's what I want you to understand, that God does not expect us to accept his word without evidence. God has gone to great lengths to provide overwhelming evidence concerning the things that he has given to us in his word. And then uh, he gives us evidence about everything. He expects us to believe whether it's concerning the creating of his universe or the miracles of Jesus or the resurrection, we have credible evidence to base what we believe on. In fact, that's what faith is all about. You look up the definition of faith or belief, both uh, translate from the same word, pistis in the, in the original, it means a firm persuasion. When you're talking about faith, we're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about faith based, based on feelings. We're talking about a firm persuasion, a conviction or trust or assurance. And that's the way the Bible itself defines it. God tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, here's the King James Version. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We're talking about substance. Substance is that which stands under and holds up. What I believe has substance to it. It's not empty. It's not blind. It's not a leap of faith. But it's something that I have evidence for. The New American Standard translates this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. My faith is based on things that are assured. Something that I'm convicted of. Something that's not, I'm not wishy-washy. I don't have doubt about it. I believe it because I have evidence. The NIV says it this way. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean that I'm not sure about it. There's a lot of places I've never been. Never been to Alaska. But Lynn just recently came from there. 
Saw some beautiful pictures. I don't have to see it because of the evidence. I know there's an Alaska. I know a lot of things from history that I've never seen, but because of credible evidence, I believe it. There's substance to it. There's assurance. I'm convicted about it. I'm sure about it. I am certain about it. And I'm certain about the existence of God because of the evidence that I have. Notice he says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, by faith we understand. It's about what we know. Faith is a, involves knowledge. He says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. How do I know about how things were made? And even though I couldn't see it, I, I didn't see it happen and Things that I can't see, I know because of evidence. By faith, I understand by what I can see in this world points to what I cannot see. And when we look at the intelligent design of this universe and the things it contains, we see that it points to a divine designer, a divine creator. You know, many of the things that I'll present to you tonight for your consideration are not original with me. They come from many sources. A lot of the statements and data and the facts and illustrations, uh, of course, don't come from me, but they come from credible sources. Um, some textbooks, some um, from Apologetics Press and from men like Ken Hoven of Accomplice International. You've probably heard of him if you've studied the subject at all. Um, I'm certainly not a scientist. Uh, but I've for many years been interested in this topic. But the fact, fact of the matter is you don't have to be a scientist to come to a logical, intelligent decision about the existence of God. Because of the overwhelming evidence that's been placed before us, a person of common intelligence can make a logical, intelligent, reasonable conclusion concerning the existence of God. I believe by looking at the things that we have before us that we can conclude that there is a God. So I want us to reason together tonight and consider the universe and its marvelous intelligent design. You know, when you speak to someone who doesn't believe in God, whether he's an agnostic or an atheist, many times they say, okay, if if God exists, then where did he come from? You ever been asked that? (laughs) Okay, if God exists, where does he come from? However, that question displays a misconception of God to begin with, doesn't it? The God of the Bible is not affected by time, space, or matter. If a so-called God was affected by time, space, and matter, then he wouldn't be God. The universe consists of these three things. This is the very basis of our universe, time, space, and matter. And this is what's called a continuum. Each one of these things depend on one another, and they cannot exist without each other. Therefore, they had to come into existence at the same instant. That's continuing. You can't have one without the other. Now, if you don't have space, where would you put it? If you had matter and space and no time, when would you put it? Uh, each one depends upon the other. They all had to exist and exist come into existence simultaneously. And the Bible answers all that in 10 words. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space. And the earth, there's matter. All three. 
God created them, created them all in the same instance, and that's the basis of our entire universe. They all have to depend on one another, and they therefore had to be created simultaneously. But in doing that, God has done something with great design, hasn't he? It sounds simple to just talk about time, space, and matter, but in this, he's created a trinity of triads when he created time, space, and matter. Time, you have past, present, and future. Space, you have length, width, and height. And matter, you have solid, liquid, and gas. You have a a trinity of triads in time, space, and matter, all in this continuum of, of relying upon each other, dependent upon each other, and having been created simultaneously. Do we see design in that? And yet someone says, well, if there's a God, where did he come from? God is not affected by time, space, or matter, or he wouldn't be God. God is outside the universe. He's outside time, space, and matter. He's above it. He's beyond it. He's through it. He is not affected by it. So the question that asks, where does God come from? It assumes a limited God, and God is unlimited. We see that in His creation. We see further the universe and its design, and it is, when you look at it, and the closer you look at it, the greater our faith ought to be, because the more that we see, it's reasonable, logical to conclude that if there's design, there must by necessity be a designer. But in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul tells us, That we're without excuse. All men are without excuse if we do not observe what is around us and come to the conclusion that there is a God. And not only that, but that we are to honor him and to give thanks to him. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, because that which is known about God is evident. We're talking about evidence. We're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about basing what I believe on feelings. We're talking about evidence. He says, that which is known about God is evident within them. We are made in the image of God and God has created us with intelligence. We didn't start off dragging our knuckles and uh, living out uh, like an animal. Man was created with intelligence. We are born with intelligence and we continue to grow in our intelligence the older we get. There are certain things that he has placed within us, a longing for something beyond here. The wise man said that he has set eternity in our heart. There are certain things that we know that is within us, but there's also things that are evident to us. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. How's he made it evident to us? He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been what? Clearly seen. We're talking about things that we can see. We're talking about observation. When we look at that, he says it can be understood that through what has been made, we can understand these things about God so that we are without excuse. It seems that men can believe that about small things, but they have problems with it about more intelligent things. Larger things, more complex things. Some people say, well, if you didn't have the Bible, you wouldn't even have an idea about God anyway. It's just something that somebody wrote in the Bible and you believed it, you're gullible enough to believe it. 
What about the man on the desert island? I don't know how many times as a preacher I've been asked about the guy on the desert island. You've been asked about that before? What about that fellow on the desert island? If you've never had a Bible, would he believe in God? Well, what this is saying, it doesn't talk about, it's not talking about him reading this in the scriptures. He's talking about what is evident to him by the creation of the world, by what's clearly seen. Through that he can understand, through what is made, he can understand not only that there is a God, but understand some attributes about God and that he is without excuse if he doesn't realize that. Worship and give thanks to God. So what about the guy on the desert island? Well, he can be able to look around and realize there's a God. <laughs> i give you an illustration. You take a guy on the desert island. He's never seen a watch before in his life. Raised on the desert island and he goes out and lo and behold, there's a watch washed up on the, on the sand there. Never seen one before in his life. But he's a curious kind of fellow and he looks at this thing. He observed it, and he watches this little stick. It keeps clicking around in a circle. And he notices, and he watches it for a while, and he notices when this little stick goes all the way around that this longer, thicker stick goes from notch to notch. And he sits there, and he's so curious about this thing, he realizes that it, when this long stick slowly goes around all, around all these notches, that this smaller one goes from bump to bump. And he watches this thing. He didn't understand. He'd never seen this before. And he's a curious kind of fellow. And he even pries the back off this thing and looks inside to see what it's all about. And he sees all of the works inside this thing and sees how it's working together in synchronization. I'll tell you what. He doesn't know who made this. He doesn't know what purpose it is. He doesn't know where it come from. But I'll tell you one thing he knows. He's got enough sense to observe that it didn't make itself. Now, if I can observe that from a Timex watch from Walmart, why can't I see that with the complexity of the universe? Isn't it intelligent? Isn't it reasonable? Isn't it logical to realize if there is design, that there is a designer? It is logical, isn't it? Remember, the atheist says, you know, it's just blind faith. It's, just, it's not logical. It's not reasonable. People are not thinking. Who's not thinking? <laughs> Think about it and make a reasonable conclusion. Why is it that people don't believe? Well, they can clearly see it, God says. It's all around them. He made it evident to them. Made it evident within them. Why don't they believe it? He says, even though they knew God, and you can know him just by what's there, by what's evident. By what you see, it's clearly seen, he said. But he says, they do not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, you can be a very intelligent individual and still be a fool if you don't accept what truth is, what is rational, what's logical. David observed that. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14 and verse 1. But David was no fool. David observed what God had put around him. He said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained, he looked around. He said, what is man that thou takest thought of him? We're a very small spot in this universe. But David observed the things in the universe. And what was his conclusion? 
In Psalm 19 and verse 1, he said, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. That's what he concluded. When he looked at what was seen, what is clearly seen, what is evident and been placed around him, he understood something about God. He said, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands day to day, pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there's no words, no voice is heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their utterances to the end of the world. The things that we look at, we see the design, the complex design of God's creation. We see design and therefore it points to a divine designer, an almighty God. That's what David concluded. And what wonderful complexity we have in our universe. You know, our universe is based upon scientific laws that God set forth from the beginning And this precision of the universe allows scientists to shoot off rockets and make things land on planets within a few feet of where they uh, intend for them to uh, because everything works in perfect synchronization. Such precision and exactness allows astronomers to predict eclipses many years before they come or tell us when Halley's Comet's going to come back around because everything works in perfect synchronization. This Precision and complexity and orderliness demands intelligent design. The evolutionist denies that there is intelligent design. They deny it. Is that logical? They tell me you're, you're blind in your faith. You're in a leap of faith. You're not reasonable. You're not using logic. Who is copying out when you really look at the evidence? No, Isaac Newton said the most beautiful system of the sun and planets comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. He was a good observer, wasn't he? When you see design, you see that there's got to be a designer. Whether it's a watch on the beach or whether it's a building, you don't get a building without a builder, do you? And you don't get a painting without a painter and you don't get a uh, a score of music without a composer. Precision, complexity, and orderliness of the universe declares its design, and that gives evidence to a divine designer. Now, let's think about some things. I want you to consider not just the complexity of the planets and the stars, but I want you to think about the animal kingdom and its marvelous design for just a minute. Man is the crown of God's creation, but certainly the animals have been put here under our dominion, declare the existence of the divine designer. Psalm 104 and verse 24, O Lord, how many are thy works? In thy wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. There's the sea, great and broad, it swarms without number, and animals both great and small. All these things have design, don't they? The smallest ones have design. We just recently went down to the aquarium in Chattanooga. It is amazing just at the the fish and uh, the marine animals that are there, the design of them. I, I just I really like looking at those jellyfish that light up. Uh, there's just it's amazing. All of them are amazing. All of God's creatures. What do we see when we look at that? What conclusion do we make? When we logically, reasonably look at the evidence, do they declare that there's a, a maker? 
a designer. <laughs> There's some impressive uh, articles published by Polygenics Press. If you're not familiar with them, you might want to go online and look at some of those articles that they have. Uh, there's, I'm going to give you a couple examples. Here's one uh, article that, that I read that talked about the, the molly fowl, the bird with the thermometer in its beak. <laughs> it's amazing what this animal does. It's in Australia. And when it's time for the female to lay eggs, this male will dig a hole in the sand and he'll fill it full of... Uh, Debris, the sticks and leaves, and then he'll cover that with sand, and then he'll mount up sand even up to four feet. And as that, those leaves and sticks start to rot, it produces heat. And when he gets the right temperature, they, he digs a hole back, and then they, um, uh, the female starts laying eggs, so they get about 18 eggs. And then he covers them up. And then he will stick his beak in, and with his tongue, he will detect the temperature. You know, all of us, you remember taking your temperature when you were little. When I was little, shows how old I am, we used to use glass thermometers. You had to shake down the mercury and then hold it in there, you know, for a long time. And then, then they came up with the little electronic ones that you could do maybe in 60 seconds or so. And then now they got them where you put them in your ear or scan your forehead. But this thermometer that he has... <laughs> in his tongue is more accurate than any of those thermometers. He can detect temperature change within a tenth of a degree. And if it's a little bit too hot, he'll pull some sand off. And if it's a little bit too cool, he'll put more sand on. And he does this for several weeks and keeps it just the right temperature to the eggs hatch. Now the question is, how does he know how to do that? Did he just evolve to be able to do that? How does he know what the exact temperature of the eggs are supposed to be? And how does he know that rotting leaves covered with sand will produce heat? How does his tongue measure the temperature and changes of a tenth of a degree? <laughs> it's simple. There's design behind that, isn't it? That didn't happen by chance. Just by millions of years and by adaptations and, and by chance he, he's able to do this. Design shows a designer. I had a hard time picking what I wanted to talk about. There are so many animals, wonderful animals in there. Why don't you look at this little insect right here? The beetle that has a bomb in his belly. The bombarder beetle. This is a bad beetle. <laughs> he produces two different chemicals in his body and stores them in this little bladder. And then when he's attacked or threatened, he causes, he pushes these chemicals into this little heart-shaped container, this valve, which is covered with enzymes. And when those are excreted with these two chemicals, it makes a chemical reaction and produces heat and free oxygen so that he's able to take through this revolvable turret and spew out something that gets up to 212 degrees. Now, how did that happen? Did that happen by chance? How is a beetle able to produce proper chemicals, keep them separate till they're needed, manufacture the right enzymes to make the chemical reaction for them to be able to uh, propel a hot mixture in the face of his enemy through this little 
turret that's able to move around in any direction. And to do that at 212 degrees. Design, beautiful design. Just doesn't happen. When I look at that, I want to know what's true. I want to know what's reasonable. I want to make a logical conclusion. When I look at that, that just didn't happen. Design points to the fact that there is a designer. Then there's symbiosis. All of God's creatures show design and intelligent design, but symbiosis is where two wonderful creatures depend on one another for their survival. And there are thousands of examples of this. Animals that and animals and plants that work together. Evolutionists have tried very hard unsuccessfully to try to explain the existence of symbiosis in plants and animals. You take uh, hummingbirds, for example. Hummingbirds and flowers. Not only could flowers and hummingbirds not evolve, it's impossible for them to evolve together. In the evolutionary chain, as you look at it, you don't see hummingbirds and flowers at the same period of time. And they couldn't wait on each other to evolve and to adapt because if a flower is not pollinated by the bird, it's going to die off very quickly. And if the flower is not there to provide the nectar for the bird, it's going to die very quickly. In fact, all species of insects and animals and plants that live that are dependent on other creatures would die within a matter of days at the, at the most months. There's no time for evolution when it comes to symbiosis. There's all kinds of examples for these clownfish and anemones or crocodiles and the plover birds that they allow in their mouth when they snap and eat everything in. But don't you look at a couple of examples. You look at uh, the symbiotic relationship uh, with sharks and other fish. You've got the white-tipped shark. He's supposed to be, uh, well, you remember Jacques Cousteau. Some of you may remember him or heard of him. He was a great oceanographer, and he, he declared that the white-tipped shark was the most ferocious shark of all. He is a fish eater and a bony fish eater. He'll just go in and just crunch bony fish, schools of them. He goes through with his mouth open, just taking in tuna. But he doesn't eat the pilot fish. They swim right along with him. And God, through the pilot fish, has made a biological toothbrush. When they eat all this bony fish, and sometimes garbage, they'll eat anything. They get all this in their teeth, and it causes uh, disease and parasites. It's very uncomfortable, and, and it deters his being able to, to eat and survive. But God has made this pilot fish where it's able to go into its mouth and the shark won't eat it and it will clean his teeth enabling him to eat the, and the pilot fish gets the protection of hanging around a fierce predator. And the remora fish does the same thing for the, for the lemon shark. It is amazing. Now how do they survive with, without one another and which one evolved before the other and if one evolved before the other, then how did the one live without the other? <laughs> it's not explained by evolution. But when you look at this wonderful design, what you see is that there is a wonderful designer. 
Like I said, there's many other examples. But I, this is one that intrigues me, and that's the termite and this trichonympha. I'm just going to call them little critters. You take a termite's a little critter, isn't it? A little critter that, about like an ant, that chews and eats wood. But the thing with the termite, the termite cannot digest wood. Do you know that? Termite eats wood, but he cannot digest the cellulose of the wood. But within him, in his gut, now the, the termite's a, a small little critter. His gut's really small. And these little critters are really, really small. But these little critters that are inside his gut produce enzymes that break down the cellulose that enables the termite not starve to death. The trichinempha can't live outside the termite and the termite can't live without these little critters. Now the question is, which one evolved first? And if one evolved first, how did it live without the other? Because one can't live without the other. There are literally thousands of these examples. It's much more reasonable to conclude that there's an intelligent design in these animals than to try to believe that it all come about in a way that cannot even be explained by evolution. But you know, those who deny uh, that there is a God and they believe in evolution, they always talk about adaptations. You study that if you went to college at all and high school as well. It's everywhere. They always talk about how they adapted, how they adapted. Science Daily, and this is supposed to be the source for your Latest research news. But it's talking about the pitcher plant here, and it says the pitcher plants have distinctive adaptations allow them to live in uh, nutrient-poor soils. Adaptations. They had to adapt to be able to... How do you, if, you, if you can't live in nutrient-poor soil, how do you adapt to live in nutrient-poor soil? How long does it take to adapt? You die before you adapted to live in nutrient-poor soil. You have to have nutrients, unless you already have, unless you were designed that way. Why not just say these plants are designed to live in nutrient-poor soils? But no, they adapted to do that. And this foolishness, this illogical idea, is taught to kids at a very early age. You can see this uh, is probably for like a fourth or fifth grader. And they're talking about Organisms survive their surroundings uh, by adaptations. Lungs, they say, are adaptations for living on land. And gills are adaptations for living in the water. You have to uh, adapt to live where you are, so you have to uh, uh, develop a lung to be able to live in the air. You develop a gill to live in the water. Why not just say that there's a design feature? Some things are designed to live in the air. Some things are designed to live in the water. They want to avoid the word design because if they put that in the textbook, then some kid's going to say, well, then who's the designer? They don't want that in school, right? But by the way, if lungs are adaptations to living on land and gills are adaptations for living in water, how did anybody ever live anyway? You got to live in the air or the water one, right? Well, 
If I'm on the land, I can't, I can't live in the water because I don't have gills. But if I'm on the, on the land, I've got to develop lungs, but I can't develop lungs while I'm in the water because I don't have gills. There's something wrong with that picture, isn't it? It's circular reasoning. Makes no sense. But what does make sense is that when I see something that has gills that lives in the water, that that's a wonderful design. And that design points to the fact that there's a divine designer. The fact that I have lungs and can breathe oxygen, I can pull it out of the, out of the air. It's a wonderful design, isn't it? It's been given to us by our Creator. I want us to look for just a few minutes as we, before we close here at our own bodies. Look at ourselves. Look at the wonderful human body and how it shows, above all, I think, the wonderful design and shows that there is a creator. I want you to think about the eye, for example. Now, the textbooks, which are written by atheists and evolutionists. Here's what it says. They say the complex structure of the human eye may be the progress of many years of evolution. Does your eye, when you think about the eye and the complexity of the eye, I wish I could present this like a friend of mine. I heard him do a lesson. He's an optometrist and he done a wonderful lesson. I'm not capable of talking about all the parts of the eye like he did. But I don't have to be an optometrist to realize how wonderful the eye is and it has a wonderful design. The Bible says that God formed that. He who formed the eye, does he not see? Psalm 94 and verse 9. You think about the eye. The back of the eye is about one square inch, the retina. And yet it contains over 137 million light-sensitive cells. 137 million light-sensitive cells, all connected to the brain. There are three main parts to our our being able to see, right? You've got the eye that allows light to, to come in and translates that into an electrical impulse. And that goes through the optical nerve. It transmits that to the part of the brain that's able to take and translate that and make some sense of it so that we can see. Question, which one of those parts evolved first? And what part, what did it, the one that, uh, that adapted first, what did it do without the other two? What good was it? 137 million connections. Jeff does electricity work. Can you imagine doing 137 million connections in a a square inch? I've done some electrical work. I can imagine that. And yet God's able to do that. Is it intelligent to look at the eye and say, this evolved, this just came from nothing and out of randomness that these things came about? Or does it make more sense to look at the evidence and to see that it points to a designer? I just want to know what's logical, don't you? I just want to believe what's reasonable. I want to believe what's true. You show that to an atheist. And you remind somebody of this. If they're an atheist or an agnostic and they don't believe in God, you just ask them about this. They believe in evolution, ask them about this. 
ask an evolutionist, do you believe that this could have evolved? Ever how long it want to take? Millions of years? Billions of years? Do you think that it could have by chance or maybe by uh, abrasion, maybe by thermal expansion of the rocks, these things happen. You hear all kinds of things about how things came about in the beginning, right? And they'll say no. It just couldn't happen, right? The face of George Washington appearing on a rock. No, they know that it was designed by a, name, by a guy by the name of Borglum. He did that. Design points to a designer. Now they, they won't believe that George Washington's face will appear on a rock out of any means over whatever period of time, but they want to tell me that George Washington, with all the trillions of cells in his body and all the systems within his body that are interleaked and working in perfect synchronization, they want to tell me that he evolved. Now, you, you want to talk about copping out. You want to talk about what's intelligent and what's not. You want to talk about what's logical and what's not logical. I mean, you think about it. You, you, you tell me you don't believe that George Washington's face could appear on a rock. But you want to tell me that George Washington or someone like him would come from evolution. I think it's very clear to see where the copping out is, where who needs to think and And who needs to evaluate evidence? The evidence shows that if George Washington's face couldn't come out on a rock, that certainly his body did not evolve. Just think about the human body. The average human body is made up of over 250 different kinds of cells. You've got red blood cells, white blood cells, nerve cells, all kinds of cells. Over 250 different kinds of cells, totaling approximately 100,000 cells in the average adult. 100,000 cells. Out of all those cells, the most complex is your DNA, chromosomes. They're most complex molecules in the universe. And out of those trillions of cells that you have in your body, if you took out the DNA, it only fill about two tablespoons. But what's so amazing is if you took that DNA out and you uncoiled it, it there's so you see the spiral pictures of the DNA, they're so tightly coiled and wound. If you took them and unwound them, stretched them out and put them end to end, one person's DNA would reach from the earth and the moon, earth and moon and back over a half million times. Does that blow your mind? I looked that up on four or five different sources just to see if that was correct, that it wasn't a typo. And they're going to read DNA? Can you imagine the quantity? Oh, they can read some things. But can you imagine the quantity of information? And all that information in those two tablespoons of DNA that comes from your body, all that information just to make you, I'd say you're pretty special. And I think that your body shows great design. And that design points and demands a divine designer. Even further evidence is the fact that we're able to reproduce. 
It's not only that it's just one time, but that human bodies are able to reproduce another human body. It requires intricate mechanisms that cause the genetic information to be rejoined in fertilization, which becomes an embryo, which grows into another human body with all its systems and parts and processes in the womb from its digestive system to its skeletal system, to its bones. What does that point to? i tell you one thing. We may not know how it happens. But we can surely know that there is someone who is greater than all of us who makes it happen. The wise man said, just as you do not know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. And if you can't look at that, and see that there is intelligent design. They said there's nothing that you can look at in the universe that shows intelligent design. Who needs to open their eyes? Who needs to be reasonable? Who needs to be logical? I look at this and I see wonderful, amazing design. David recognized it. He said, I give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Is is that intelligent to believe? I think so. Is that logical to believe? Yes. David recognized it and he did it without microscope or x-ray. And the only reasonable, logical conclusion... And this is what the evidence points to. That wonderful and intelligent design that we see in the universe and the animals, even in our own bodies, shows that there's a wonderful divine creator. And this I can believe, not with blind faith or not just based on emotions, but I can do it because of substance, because of evidence. I can be assured, I can be convicted, I can have faith, because that's what faith is. And I have something that the atheist does not have because of his denial. Never let your faith feel inferior to those who claim to be wise, though they are fools when they reject God because it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. We can know these things. In fact, we must. Jesus who, along with the Father and the Spirit, is God and claims to be God, and He created all things. John chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and there is nothing that has come into being that has come into being apart from Him. Nothing. He is God and He is Creator. And Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. Notice the the word he there is in italics. It's not in the original. I think it's better left out. Jesus is making a claim to deity. He said, unless you believe that I am, the claim to being God, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. But Jesus did not come to this earth that we might die in our sins. He came to show us the Father and to die for our sins. And tells us if we will believe him and obey him that we'll be saved. He that believes 
and is baptized shall be saved. Now, if you happen to be here tonight and you're not a Christian, you've not shown your belief by acting upon it and obedience by being baptized, we'll assist you to do that tonight. But I hope that you'll consider these things. I hope it will encourage you and maybe give you some things to talk with those who are skeptics of who feel that maybe they're, they're wise but been misled, maybe by some of the things that they've read and been taught in school. And I'm so thankful to have young men, young women, brethren who, who believe in God and who seek to do His will. Let us all be so thankful and express our belief, not only just in our words, but through our actions and showing our obedience to Him in our daily life. If you need to obey Christ, you can right now while we stand and sing the song.